Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, this is Trey. Thank you for joining us for another Thursday edition, uh, which, of course, is the day where we have the pleasure of entertaining your questions, which are always thought-provoking, and for that, and I don't even want to say we need the help of Mary Langston because this has kind of turned into your podcast. I guess I am the guest question answerer on your weekly podcast, and for that, uh, I'm grateful. Thank you for having me. Well, it's your podcast, Trey. Thank you for having me, and thank you for allowing me to ask you these questions. We have a lot of great ones today. Are you ready? I think so. There's no lawyer present, so... We can talk about sports first, or we can go right into questions. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, you know, I didn't really watch the Super Bowl because um, I was actually working during part of the Super Bowl, mm-hmm. which was a blessing because um, Dallas wasn't playing, so I didn't care. I felt sorry for that young man that was called for holding at the end of the game. That that truly changed the outcome. But you know what? That guy did something unusual in our current culture. They asked him after the game about it. And, you know, 99 players out of 100 would have said, I shouldn't have been called. I didn't hold him. That guy said, yeah, it was it was a hole. And it probably technically was. It did not impact the play. I guess in theory, you can call something on every single play if you wanted to. I don't know. I hated it for him because it wound up, you know, Kansas City was going to probably kick the field goal anyway, but Philadelphia would have gotten the ball back. So it would have been a much more ex- uh, exciting ending, but that's not what it was. And, and, and South Carolina and LSU played in women's basketball earlier on Sunday, mm-hmm. which, you know, the game was probably a little bit closer than the score indicated. But uh, what a great platform for, you know, two of my favorite coaches and, um, South Carolina looks awfully good, but you got to remember Kim Mulkey's in her second year at LSU. Not I mean she's not even halfway through. I don't get or barely halfway through her second year at LSU. So sports has to include uh, that game and Scotty Scheffler winning the uh, Waste Management Phoenix Open because, as you know, he's one of my favorite golfers too. So mm-hmm. there, there's your sports recap. Probably some of which you knew, but it didn't really impact your life the way it did mine. It was a fun week to participate in sports and watch them. So I'm glad you gave us a little summary. Uh, well, you're welcome for that. Maybe in another life. I don't I don't believe in reincarnation, but if I'm wrong and if I have to come back as a person, you know what I want to come back as, don't you? <laughs> yes. What do I want to come back as? One of your dogs. One of my wife's dogs. Yes, that's what I want to come back as because they are the best treated things on earth. So I don't want to come back as a person. I want to, and I don't want to come back as her husband. I want to come back as the love of her life, which is one of her dogs. (laughs) 
but <laughs> I'm if, sure justice would love that. But if what were you going to say? Yeah. If I had to come back as a person, um, it would be a sports person. So uh, I which do sport uh, I'd like to call college football, college women's basketball and golf all in the same day. Wow. That's impressive. And be paid a triple salary for all of that. So I could be <laughs> filthy rich. <laughs> is that wrong? Maybe it is. Oh, well, I'll <laughs> we'll bet let the wrong. listeners decide. Yeah, probably. I think there's a verse about that in the Bible, maybe, possibly. All right. What we got this week? Anything I can answer, you think? Yeah, I think so. We have a lot of great questions today. We have, I think, four and it's a range of questions. There is a little bit of sports in here, too. So that's exciting. But we can go ahead and get started if you like. I think that'd be fantastic. Okay, wonderful. We'll start with a question from Barbara in Texas. And she writes, is it possible that the school district's police force is charged with protecting the reputation of the district and their administrators above the student's safety? And she's asking this after watching your Sunday night show. And for folks not familiar with the story that we highlighted, I think she was 14, right? 14-year-old. Um, I guess that would make her a freshman in high school, was assaulted. Actually, you know, the legal term in South Carolina, um, and I didn't make this up, it's just that's what the law calls it. The law calls it lynching in South Carolina. Um, there's no racial component. There's a lot of racial component to the word lynching from a historical standpoint. But South Carolina law, anytime two or more assault someone and cause injury, that's a lynching. And a group of students attacked this child unprovoked in the hallway of school. Uh, then they began to harass her online and they posted the video of the assault online. And uh, the school district's reaction was vexing. Let's just use that word, vexing. And this child wound up taking her own life because I am sure she felt isolated and alone and victimized with nobody standing up for her. So she took her own life. And I think Barbara is asking, is it possible that officers that are assigned to schools, their primary responsibility is to protect the reputation of the school as opposed to adjudicate and advance the interests of victims? And the answer is, um, I don't know. I know in South Carolina, we had officers, we call them school resource officers, but they are full-blown law enforcement officers, sheriff's deputies, and city police officers in my home area. And they have a lot of things they have to do. But, I mean, you got to keep in mind in a school, there are lots of things you can't do in the school that aren't necessarily criminal. Uh, there's a dress code in schools. And if somebody violates the dress code, you have to enforce the dress code. And that means discipline. But you don't get arrested for that. Talking in class is uh, generally proscribed, uh, forbidden uh, when it's not your turn to talk going into another class that you're not assigned to. So if I'm assigned to science and I decide I want to go into English, that's not a crime, but it's a violation of school policy. So I do think officers sometimes are put in the position of having to help the school enforce um, its own rules, which may not rise to the level of a crime. And when I mean crime, 
crime is more than just behavior that we don't like or behavior that we don't think people should engage in. There has to be a law that's passed. This is what you cannot do. This is the punishment if you do it. And these are the elements of the offense. That's what makes it a crime. So we got to at least start with the fundamental proposition. There's lots of conduct we don't want that is not characterized or categorized as a crime. Having said that, what happened to this child was a crime. It wasn't talking in school. It wasn't a violation of the dress code. It was an assault. When you assault someone, it doesn't matter whether it's at church or whether it's at school or whether it's at the mall or whether it's on the street. It's a crime. And so what I do think happens sometimes is school districts want to handle things, quote, in-house that are indeed crimes. Uh, This one, to me, uh, was not close. Uh, You do not attack someone unprovoked, causing injury, and simply get suspended. And these students, I believe, were charged. They were just charged after she killed herself. If it's a crime after the child took her life, Why would it not be a crime before she took her life? So there's a lot to think about. Uh, You know that I have a lot of respect. I mean, the superintendents, we had seven in Spartanburg when I was the district attorney and another one over in Cherokee County could not have asked for a better group of women and men to work with than the administrators. And, you know, truancy is a crime, quote, a crime. It's a crime to be a truant, but it makes no sense to punish the kid. If you're six years old and cannot take yourself to school, what sense does it make to charge a kid with being a truant when it's the parents? I worked very closely with the superintendents, but there are certain categories of crime that just elevate themselves out of the school setting. I mean, the school is not like a separate society with its own laws. You may have additional rules. Those aren't crimes, but it's not like a crime-free zone. I mean, if it were a sexual assault, I mean, are you going to handle that in-house? <laughs> That's a pretty serious crime. If it's a broken jaw, a knocked-out tooth, you're not going to call the cops. You're just going to suspend them. So I do have sympathy for administrators, um, but not in this fact pattern. Uh, this was a crime. It should have been handled by law enforcement. The juvenile justice system is very different from the adult justice system. It is actually not designed to punish. It is designed to rehabilitate. So even if the police were called, it is not as if these students, and I think they were girls, but I don't know that. The video is not 100% clear. These students would have been put through things designed to rehabilitate them. You know, one of which is having to apologize to the victim. So it's not like she's going to be these students that assaulted this young woman, they're not going to be sent to a maximum security prison with El Chapo and the Unabomber. They're going through a diversion program, but they're going to be in the criminal system, which tells the victim, we take this very seriously. We are on your side. You are not alone. You have been victimized. You have done nothing wrong. And she evidently did not feel that way. And she wound up taking her life. So what the motivation of the school district is I don't know, but school districts don't like have their own police force. The police are the police. And if you would get involved outside of school setting, there should be a presumption that you're going to get involved inside the school setting. And the other thing, 
before I leave this, and it just it's just a pet peeve of mine, this notion that the victim like has to press charges. The crime is not technically against the victim. Crimes are against the state. The state is the victim of a crime. That's more than just a legal theory. I, I prosecuted a homicide case where the mother of the victim did not want him charged with murder. She was the most compassionate. Um, I don't even have the words to describe her. She loved her daughter. She loved her daughter. But she thought that this was just an aberrant act that would never happen again. And she did not want me to charge her son-in-law with murder. So am I supposed to like follow the victim's mom's thoughts on that? I didn't, if anyone's wondering, because it's a crime against the state of South Carolina. You should not be rewarded because you happen to murder a compassionate, caring person. So the notion that, first of all, murder victims almost never press charges because they're always dead. So you can't ask them. In this case, you certainly want to consult with the victim and you want to get the victim's input. But victims do not make charging decisions. Cops and prosecutors make charging decisions. And this young woman either was not consulted or did not feel like um, she felt she was being re-victimized and therefore she took her life. Mm, this is so heartbreaking, but thank you for answering that question, Trey. And thank you, Barbara, for sending it our way. We'll answer more of your questions when we come back. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Our next question is from Harold, and he writes, Searching for info about the process of impeachment. Is it like the presidential impeachment needing both houses? And he's talking about the Secretary of Homeland Security. Uh, yes. Uh, well, the standard is the same. Um, I think high crimes and misdemeanors, which in and of itself is really hard for us to get our heads around. A misdemeanor in modern society is a speeding ticket. Misdemeanors are the least serious offenses in our current culture. So we see the word misdemeanor, high crimes and misdemeanors. Those are two different things to us. A high crime is like really, really, really serious. A misdemeanor is the lowest form of crime. And Congress decides what's a high crime and misdemeanor. And in this case with Ali Mayorkas, my guess is their argument would be dereliction of duty, a failure to enforce the law, a failure to do your job. A malfeasance would be the word I think they would use. You can also have an impeachment if a cabinet uh, and everyone's not subject to impeachment, um, but he would be as a cabinet level. 
so he would be eligible, then you have to, you know, set the standard or make the accusation of what rises to the level. Uh, impeachment is a very, very serious. It, it's not just removal from office, which is serious, but you can also bar that person from ever holding office again. You can be impeached and not barred, but you can also be impeached and barred from ever holding office again. The biggest difference, Harold, is who presides. When it's the president of the United States, the chief justice of the Supreme Court presides over the impeachment trial. When it is not the president of the United States, then the Senate presides. And when I say preside, makes evidentiary rulings if there are any. I mean, these are not really trials. If you've ever been through a trial where you have objections and you can't use hearsay and there's a relevancy standard, these are not real trials. There is so much hearsay. These are like productions. And I'm not offering that as a criticism. That's just what they are. They're not real trials. Real trials have rules. And the Senate gets to set its own rules because the Senate is the finder of fact. They're the jury. They're the jury. They're also the judge. So you ask, is the process the same? It is, except you still have to figure out what that standard is, what the standard that rises to the level of impeachment. I remember, I think I was, I may have been in California, but I remember downloading a book, kind of the go-to book on impeachment. It's about 60 pages long. I read it in about an hour, and it's still considered the gold standard or impeachment. And the reason I can read it in an hour is because there's just not that much there. The House decides what rises to the level of an impeachable offense. Constitution says high crimes and misdemeanors. What does that mean? It means whatever the House says it means, whatever 218 people think it means. And then you go to the Senate and about the only rules, if it's a presidential impeachment, the chief justice presides. If it's not, it doesn't mean the chief justice cannot preside, but they have not. The Senate kind of runs its own show. And uh, the vote total is the same, two-thirds to convict. So there are more similarities than differences. The big difference, I think, is who presides uh, in presidential versus non-presidential impeachments. Well, thank you so much, Trey, and thank you, Harold, for your question. Our next question is from Steve in Colorado. He writes, I'm curious your thoughts regarding the long-term impacts of NIL, name, image, and likeness, will have on college football. So there's our sports question. It is a sports question. Um, and for those not familiar with NIL, name, image, and likeness, it kind of opens the door for college athletes to be paid. And I, I have mixed feelings on it. Schools make a ton of money. Coaches make a ton of money. And you got players that may not be able to afford to go back home. And there are very strict rules on what schools can give students. So, I mean, I imagine this athlete will pick a women's sport. She's a fantastic tennis player, um, volleyball player, soccer player. She does not have the financial wherewithal to go home over the holidays. The school can't pay for it. Mm -hmm. uh, that just doesn't seem right. So I am very sympathetic there. I'm also wary that it's just going to be one of those situations where the rich get richer. If you have a bunch of rich graduates from your school, 
and they're going to put a lot of money into NILs, then you're going to get uh, better players and you're going to have more success, which means people are going to donate more money. And it's just a cycle where the rich get richer and it becomes a bidding war. And, you know, I'm very partial to uh, Shane Beamer at the University of South Carolina. I don't think the coaches can get involved in all of that. I don't think they can sit there and talk to a recruit about NIL opportunities. But like everything else in life, I am sure that there are coaches that kind of find out where the lot. He would not be one of them. Neither would Dabo. But there are coaches that kind of find out where the line is and you get as close to the line as you can. And I am positive that kids have made choices on where to go to college based on where the most financial opportunity may be. You know, on the bright side, South Carolina has, they have a bunch of really good players on their women's basketball team, including um, Aaliyah Boston, who may be the best player in the country. But they have um, a guard named Zaya Cook, and she looks like she does some advertising for companies in Columbia, and she's very photogenic, so you would imagine that she would do some advertising. I think like Dunkin' Donuts or something, I can't remember what it was, but I sit there and think good for her. I mean, she's an elite basketball player. And South Carolina literally had a capacity crowd for the game with LSU. So the school's doing well, and Coach Staley is doing well. So why should Zia Cook not do well? Mm. So I'm conflicted. I just, the purity of amateur sports, I love. I also think of players like Marcus Lattimore, who two horrific knee injuries, that guy would be a multi, multi, multi-millionaire had he not been injured playing football for South Carolina. Mm -hmm. So he misses out on a pro career. You know, Marcus may have been the top recruited player in the country when he came out of high school. So imagine the NIL money he would have gotten. And he's a wonderful person. So imagine the NIL money he could have gotten, except it wasn't around for him. So I, I got mixed feelings on it. It's probably more complicated than I made it out to be, but um, my mind is not capable of thinking um, complexly. So probably need somebody to explain it to me. I just don't want five schools getting all the great players because they have a lot of money that can be thrown around uh, for NIL. Thank you so much, Trey. And thank you, Steve. Our last question is from another Barbara. And she writes, I have only read seven pages of your new book. I'm 79 facing a husband with dementia and Alzheimer's. I feel like I know what my decisions are or should be. Is my age relevant to your new book? Uh, well, Barbara, thank you for your question. Um, sorry mm -hmm. to hear about your husband. And thank you for uh, reading uh, the book. We're part of it so far. You know, I would say the book is for anyone with a single breath left in them. And this is why I say that. And I used to not say that. When I was writing it, I thought I would really have liked to have known this or thought this or believed this when I was Mary Langston's age or my kid's age. I, I, I wish I had known this earlier in life is what I was thinking when I was writing it. And so in my head, I thought, well, this will help people, you know, like Mary Langston's age or people 
you know, a little bit older in their mid thirties, late thirties, forties, kind of making decisions about, you know, family and career. And that's what I had in my head. And then when the book came out, the preponderance of the emails and letters, I got some more over the weekend are from older folks. So it dawned on me how wrong I was. The reality is the less time we have, the more important time becomes. So when I was your age, yeah, I wanted to make good decisions, but I had forever. I don't have forever anymore. And Barbara says she's 79. That's, you know, close to my parents' age. I, I hope they live another 30 years. But the reality is when I'm 79, I probably won't have 30 years. I may have 30 days. I may have 30 months. But the less time we have, the more relevant time becomes and therefore the better decisions we want to make. So now I do understand uh, when I was in California, this man said he was in his 80s. He had, he literally had tears in his eyes and he said, thank you for writing your book. And I'm sitting there even then thinking, I really wrote it for people 18 more than 80. But an 80 year old, the decisions that he or she makes could have even more significance because there's less time to correct those decisions. So that's a long roundabout way, Barbara, of saying you are the perfect age, I think, to read the book because you are the perfect age to want to make the very best decisions you possibly can. Well, that was a sweet way to answer that question. And we certainly covered a range of topics today. Uh, we did. And uh, thank you for that eclectic. You know, I like the word eclectic. Eclectic mm -hmm. amalgamation, also like that word, amalgamation <laughs> of questions. And uh, those are the only two big words I know right this second. So we will mm -hmm. for sure, God willing, if I'm around, see you next week. And I hope everybody has a great week and keep your questions coming. Have a great week. Bye-bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News podcast plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts.